Hi, and welcome to Blissful Spinster. This week's guest is director, writer, producer, and actor, Randall Park. Just a little note, this episode was recorded back in March, well before either the WGA or SAG went on strike. Randall lives in Los Angeles and is not only a sought-after comedic actor and writer, but more recently, he's branched out into both producing and directing. While attending UCLA as an English major, Randall and some friends founded LCC Theater Company, which has since grown to become the largest Asian-American college theater group in the country. That's pretty cool. I first learned of Randall when a friend of mine sent me a link to a hilarious Comedy 101 web series called Ikea Heights. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and click the link I've left below and enjoy. Since his Comedy 101 days, Randall has made memorable appearances on shows like The Office and Veep before landing leads in Fresh Off the Boat and Blockbuster. Randall has also worked in both the Marvel and DC franchises, with his role as FBI agent Jimmy Woo's appearance in the Division series sparking an online campaign to have a spin-off series based on his character. Most notably, in my eyes, Randall co-wrote and co-starred in Netflix's rom-com Always Be My Maybe with Ali Wong and delivered a nuanced and hilarious performance as the romantic lead. In addition to his own success, Randall is also committed to amplifying Asian American and underrepresented voices in the industry. This dedication has led him to co-found Imminent Collision, a production company aimed at providing a platform for these voices. Together with his friends from the LCC Theater Company, Randall is working towards creating meaningful opportunities for marginalized communities. In his latest adventure, Randall directed his first feature film, a subversive rom-com, Shortcomings. A great film with a super relatable story about messy people who happen to be Asian American, providing a refreshing perspective on the genre. Amazingly, it played in competition at this year's Sundance Film Festival, and it's currently in theaters now. So if you can go, you should really go check it out. It was at Sundance this year, which was my first time going and it was so amazing, that I got to meet Randall at a panel he was on about directing your first feature film. And I was thrilled when I asked if he'd share his directing journey with me on Blissful Spinster. And he said yes. We had a wonderful chat and Randall was so open and generous with his insights and advice. And I'm really, really excited to bring you my conversation with Randall. So however you found this podcast, thank you for tuning in and please enjoy this week's episode. Hi, Randall. How you doing? I'm good. How are you, Chris? I'm pretty good. Thank you for agreeing to be on my podcast. It's pretty exciting for you. Of course. Happy to. Happy to. So we met at a panel for Sundance. I was in the audience and you were on the panel. That's right. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's right. Yeah. And we talked afterwards and you were very nice and, and it, it was great to meet you there. So I was wondering... How did your journey start? I know a little bit from the panel, but... Oh, gosh. My journey of life or my journey of... (laughs) As a filmmaker. Let's stick to filmmaker. Uh, (laughs) We'll have drinks later at some point and you'll tell me your life story. (laughs) Filmmaking. Let's see. I would say the start of my filmmaking endeavors probably happened while I was in middle school and I... A bunch of my friends and I would make videos. This was before, way before YouTube or anything like that. But we would just do it for fun. Make our own little shorts and like run around the streets filming everything on one of my friend's cameras that their parents owned. And, and they took it without asking. And we'd just run around the city shooting stuff. And then we'd go home and watch it and just be so excited. And, and that we we didn't really edit though that was just like shooting stuff and doing funny things on camera and uh and experiencing the high of playing it back and i think that's probably where this seed was planted uh and then many many years later after i graduated from college and started pursuing a career as an actor you know there was a lot of times when it was 
just slow and couldn't get an audition, couldn't get, you know, there was just no movement in my like professional pursuits. But thankfully, at that point, the uh, technology had advanced so much and, and getting a camera was more accessible. I didn't have I didn't need like a friend with rich parents who had a camera, I, I would shoot stuff with my friends just like I did back in middle school. <laughs> this time we had editing software and, and we're writing scripts and we're directing our own little projects and web series. And so and I that, that was when I first thought, oh, gosh, I, I might have a good knack for this making videos, essentially. And that kind of planted the seed as a possible thing I could do down the road. That's cool. Um, I grew up in um, yeah. in Mexico City. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we didn't. So I think I'm a little older than you. I'm 52. Mm-hmm. And my entry point was reading and writing. Yeah. Because I didn't have my dad had a big beta cam, but he always took it to he managed a race car team. Oh, yeah. So it was never home. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I remember writing a, a moonlighting spec script. Oh my God. Very early on. Wow. It was like in eighth grade. That was the first thing I was attempting to, to emulate, to try to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think before that, before I was like actually shooting stuff, I was writing stuff in college, plays. And eventually I, I would try writing some screenplays and would get halfway through and realize I didn't know what the hell I was doing and then try it again and <laughs> maybe even finish one, but just like looking at it and this, oh gosh, I do not know this, the craft behind this. I'm just like writing uh, and, and would eventually kind of over time pick up things and learn and read books and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It really is in the, the attempting and doing. To me, any script that is finished is a success. Yeah. It could be crap, but you have managed to do something that 95% of people don't do. I agree. Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a huge accomplishment. It is very hard to write and finish a script. So yeah, just to do that. And even starting and, and failing to finish, I think, is a part of the, if you could learn from it, you know, if you could learn from it, it's a part of the process. And I think uh, it's, it's if you could see it in, in that positive way and, and keep going after that, then it's a good thing. Yeah. So you mentioned theater, and I'm interested because I, I actually have two degrees in theater. My undergrad's in technical theater and English creative writing. Yeah. And uh my uh, grad school, I have a master of fine arts in theater technology. Oh, wow. Um, but I did all of that in service of being a better writer, yeah. if that sounds yeah. weird, because I figured if I learned how all of the parts got put together, I would be able to communicate to all the artists that were about to make my vision, right? Yeah. I find a script to be a conversation. I know people call it a blueprint. I call them conversations. Mm. They're conversation with everyone, whether it's the actor, the cinematographer, the director. Yeah. Right. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. When you were, I know that you founded a student theater group while you were at UCLA, correct? Yeah. Is it still running? Still running. That's amazing. Yeah. How did that come about? Was that out of a need for an outlet? Was there not a group that you guys fit in? Was it like your friends when you were in middle school and you just wanted to create something to create things with each other? What was that about? Well, it was, so I was at UCLA and, uh, you know, they have a great theater program, but I was never a part of that theater program. I didn't, it just wasn't really an option for me just coming from my background and the thought of getting into a good college and then going to a theater program at that college was just not even, you know, my parents would, it it wasn't an option. Uh, uh, So I, I, you know, with the pressure of 
becoming a doctor or a lawyer, you know, a lot of things that immigrant families want for their children because they come here for a better life and they and for opportunity. And what a great opportunity you're in college, you know, go on a path that's a little more predictable and a little more safe. But I had this inkling of wanting to do creative things, you know, like I did in middle school when I was making those videos and goofing off with friends. And so I found myself in this limbo. I was really good at math sciences and I thought that's where I'm supposed to go. But at the same time, I had this real inkling to do uh, creative things. And I found that there were a lot of other, particularly Asian American students at UCLA in the same boat, these people who were pursuing these medical degrees and law degrees or math science degrees, but they really wanted to goof off and tell stories. And so the theater company that that I co-founded with two other friends in similar positions was this Asian American theater company for folks like us who were wanting to explore this other side of life that none of us really thought was an option because of the paths that we were were expected of us. And so that was the kind of initial impetus for starting this theater company. And, And also because at the time I had fancied myself a playwright wrote this full-length play and and my my two friends had written full-length plays and we wanted to see them performed on stage and we weren't a part of the theater program so we're like how do we do this let's just form a theater company and and so we did and and it just kept going and going until we graduated and has since kept going that's amazing yeah. well and i could only imagine i i assume your friends were also asian american right uh yeah i mean most of them it was you know there were others in the company as well but it was predominantly Asian American. Yeah. Well, were most of your stories Asian? I mean, I, I don't mean, I know I went to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Did we have yeah. students of color? Yes. Yeah. Was it predominantly white? Yes. So that must have been a great outlet for you to create because I just, I think those outlets are so important. I want to hear those voices. Yeah. I don't want to be the only voice. Yeah. And, you know, the great thing about it was we were writing our own original material, too. So we were, we, we were, the stories ran the gamut. They, they were, some of them were very inherently Asian American about themes that we find a lot in kind of Asian American stories about family and, and different generations and the immigrant experience. But then also we just have like other, you know, rom-com stories on stage mm-hmm. and some semi-dramatic stories, you know, we, we mostly, especially in those early days, we mostly geared, just naturally geared towards comedy, but we had dramas, we had, we, and, and we got to play everything because of that. And it was such a fun, just a creative time for all of us. So you started as a writer, then wanted to see it. And then you were performing. Were you directing and performing? Was everybody? Was it like every all hands on deck? Yeah, um, we had to. You know, we had folks who were just directing. We had folks who were our performers, and we had folks who wrote, and then we had folks who kind of did a little bit of everything. And and I was one of those who, who did a little bit of everything. But initially, my thought was I was not going to act. I just wanted to write and direct. And, you know, there were always like little parts to fill. And so I, you know, I'd end up in those little parts and those parts got bigger. And then eventually I thought of myself as a performer as well. Yeah. And so initially when you started performing, you had no training then? No training. Did you get training later or you just self- taught basically uh 
Yeah, I I got I mean, eventually I would take classes and, yeah. and get training after college. But while we were there, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We we didn't have training. We didn't have we didn't know like how to write really how to write a play. We just wrote it and we just mm-hmm. did it and and weren't even aware of the rules. And and I think that was really good for us at that time because it, it, it I don't know, it just allowed us to be daring and and we made all the mistakes. And but but we had this attitude about us that, you know, I, I've been trying to recapture since where it just we just did not care. It was very like, I don't know, it's we were very free. Yeah, I, I remember my undergrad, me and a couple friends started the student theater group, yeah. which I then got to direct things that I wrote. Yeah. I was like the first student that was actually allowed to write something for the main stage. Oh, amazing. And then my senior thesis was a, a play I'd written and direct, directed. Oh, that's so great. But um, in grad school, I ended up being the technical director for the, the armory, which was the, the space for the students, right? So they had their main stages. Yeah. And there was this group that you may... I'm assuming you've run across him or know him, but Nick Offerman yeah. started it. Nick, yeah. Nick was, yeah. I want to say it was a year or two. He might have graduated the year before I got there. Okay. His name was still certainly around. Yeah. And, you know, come around. But he and I believe it was a friend of his, Joe Faust, and maybe a couple other students started the Defiant Theater, which, oh, yeah. which I bring up because oh, yeah. that's the energy that you get. Yeah. And, you know, and I think in those days, Nick fancied himself a very well-trained yeah. actor. Yeah. And and it wasn't till later that the comedic timing of his, which is very unique, yeah, kind of started to surface. You know, oh sure, he might have been more surprised than anyone else about that. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah there's this freedom when you're young if you're allowed to just play, yeah, and try, yeah. Right? In a lot of ways, like the us starting that kind of rogue theater group on campus was so much better for me and for a lot of us who've gone on to to stay in creative on a creative path because if we were in the theater uh, program I think we would have been very I don't know we would have felt very we, we, we probably wouldn't have felt that comfortable number one a lot mm-hmm. of us yeah and and a lot of us would have felt boxed in by the rules I think what we needed especially for where we were at in life at that time was to not worry about that and to just freely just express ourselves because a lot of us did come from these families that weren't didn't encourage that so it was really uh yeah it was really a a very uh fun time that's great yeah so what did you learn from your theater experience and from those early days of just going out to create things that serves you now whether it's in your acting or your direct, because you produce, you write, you do like you, you're still that kid. Yeah. I look at right now, you know? Yeah, totally. Totally. I think it, I think it really, I mean, it's, it, it, especially in retrospect, you know, you learn that it's all the same thing, no matter what, like stage you are at in the business or the, or on, on your professional journey, it's ultimately all the same thing. Nobody really knows the answer. Everyone's just guessing. Everyone's trying their best. There is no right or wrong, or, you know, as long as you're doing your best to come from an honest place, it's like just as valid as anything else. And I don't know, the be- it, it, the one thing about the industry what the film TV industry is, it's just so fear-based, at least in the, amongst the folks wearing the suits. And, and so the tendency for the artist is to 
get affected by those outside fears. And it starts to get in the way of that freedom that you have, that you always had to express yourself. And it's a constant reminder to keep that spirit alive and to kind of tell your stories and to best to not compromise those things based on the fear of whatever it may be. I mean, I get it. It's like you want to make a living and you want to, uh, you want to work. Yeah. Yeah. so I think it's really about finding that balance, but never losing that spirit. Yeah. So you've done a whole lot, whether it's TV or film, you're in. And by the way, uh, uh, WandaVision, one of my favorites. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's amazing. Um, it's and and, uh, and uh, you don't have to tell me, but I hope they are making you a series. <laughs> That's all I got to say. But when you look back at all of that, from whether it was going after what made you happy in college and starting a theater group, you know, and trying to work through that to messing around with your friends to make things and then turning that into an acting career, which has now turned into everything else. Yeah. What would you, what do you think um, a 16 year old Randall would say to you? Would you even (laughs) imagine what's gone on? No, 16 year old me would be like, who are you? You know, when I was 16, it was not to take your question too literally. But when I was 16, I was, you know, even though I was making stuff with friends, it, it was so beyond my imagination to to even think of pursuing a career in this business. It, it wasn't even something I wanted, because it wasn't even an option to think about it, really. It was it was yeah, it wasn't even a dream, really, because it wasn't an option. Uh, I didn't know anybody. You know, even though I was born and raised in LA, I didn't know anybody in the business. And there were always like, because I went to Hamilton High School in LA, and, and they did have this like arts music academy. And there were a few people in that music academy who had parents who were this or that, you know, but I wasn't in that school. You know, I was in the a different school at, at the high school. And none of us had any connections to anybody, you know. Uh, so even though I was in LA, it felt like I that felt another continent, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I I think I would if I'd just be dumbfounded at that who I was to become later, you know. Uh, also, I was a real shy kid, uh, and, and I'm still a pretty shy person. But back then, I was I was really shy. I was very comfortable around like my friends, mm-hmm. and uh, but. The thought of, I don't know, being in front of a camera, even, you know, even to this day, when people take photos of me, if I'm like on a red carpet or something, I feel so uncomfortable. It's just so not natural for me. And and I marvel at people who feel comfortable in front of, you know. So yeah, it's, it's pretty wild that I ended up here. But but it's great. You know, it's great. I just followed my heart, you know, at a certain point. And, uh, uh, and it just miraculously brought me here. So cool. So I have a quick, I've got a surprise question that wasn't on the list. Sure. So oftentimes when I have somebody that either I have a friend who I know likes that person or whatever, I'll ask them if they have a question. My, my friend, uh, Carl Hansen, who's also, he's a, he likes to call himself a timed film director. He really likes doing the 48 hours. Oh film. yeah. 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 Those um, are fun. Yeah. And then he works at his day jobs working at Fox sports one Oh, cool. as a producer for documentaries. But he said, um, uh, he's going to take you back. He's like, he'd love to know what your experience was like making Ikea Heights, which I remember when that came out, I think it was him who sent it to me, but yeah, we both kind of watched it and laughed our butts off. Um, <laughs> the balls you all had to do it. <laughs> yeah. and what was your involvement and how did you all evade store security and staff while shooting the scenes? And did that impact 
what kind of impact did that have on your performance, if at all? Um, okay, so Ikea Heights, maybe some background for people who don't know. Well, I, so I was a part, so while I was pursuing this acting career and not getting anywhere, uh, this is well into my adulthood. I, again, you know, how I had mentioned that I had access to cameras, I had access to the tools to make things. And, uh, and there was this filmmaking community called Channel 101, where it was basically you'd make a, like a five minute pilot. And then, and at the end of the month, you'd screen it in front of an audience. And if they like, if they voted for you, then you'd get to make your next episode. And it, and then you bring the second episode the next month. And if they voted for you, you get to make the third. So you have one, it's kind of a time thing too. You have one month to make your next episode. Yeah. And you're competing against other shows. And, and it's this great, really great community that Dan Harmon was one of the creators of it. And, uh, and so I was a part of that community and I was always making stuff, my own projects, but I was also helping other people with their projects. It was one of those types of worlds where you just kind of this automatic filmmaking community. And, and there were some friends who had this idea to shoot a, a soap opera using the sets of an Ikea store in the store during business hours. And uh, this very melodramatic kind of soap opera with the customers just walking around while we we shot without anyone's permission. And uh, so we so it was very fun because it felt like, again, like those days when I was in middle school and we were just so rebellious and just ma making ridiculous things. And here we were here. I was in my like early 30s uh, shooting this soap opera in an Ikea with these customers just staring at us. And that being in the shot, like in the background, you see these customers just watching us. And eventually, yeah, we'd get stopped by the workers. What are you guys doing? Why are you like getting into this argument in the couch section of the store and filming it? And we would just stay in character and try to incorporate the workers into, you know, but eventually, you know, we were, again, we were there every month because our show just kept getting voted back and they caught wind. These guys are like, they didn't even ask permission. They're using our store. And so we had heard that our photos were in the security room. If you see these people and like they literally told us they were going to arrest us the next time we come back. And uh, so we'd have to constantly change. So like there is an episode where we're like, OK, we got to do it all in one take the whole episode. One take, no cuts, you know, and uh, just so that we could shoot it all at once and then get the hell out of there because the security was on us. And then eventually it got so bad that we had to go to the Carson Ikea. <laughs> Because the one in Burbank was like they, it, it, as soon as we'd pull up in the parking lot, we'd see them like watching us. So we went to the Carson like, and then eventually they caught wind pretty soon. And, you know, so it was like this really crazy, wild idea. But we'd always incorporate the workers into it as much as we can and try to find creative ways around the problem of trying not to get caught. And and that was fun and such a great lesson in the independent filmmaking because it's like you just got to work with the restrictions. And there were so many restrictions uh, on that on that show. And then eventually we just ended it because it just became too difficult. But, but we made a lot of episodes and it was great fun. I just remember when it first came out, some of the funniest things is watching like somebody yeah. with like a mouth open, like yeah. you know, in the background while you're having a fight, or yeah, and, and they did some write-ups on it. Yeah. They, they did some write-ups, and I think they interviewed like the head of IKEA who made a comment <laughs> about it and was like saying that these guys shouldn't they shouldn't be doing that. They should they should at least ask for permission. Yeah. It was it was fun. It was really fun. Well, you mentioned independent film, and I don't know if you know of a producer called John Killick, but he's he did Spike Lee's. Um, oh yeah, and yeah, he was yeah. on Team Deacons. Yeah. 
yeah. a couple of years ago. And and he said something as, cause I'm on the path of trying to get my film off the ground. Right. Um, and he said, let your obstacles guide you, yeah. which I love. And I'm wondering how obstacles and or challenges that you've faced throughout your career, how you've let those guide you. It's a great question. Totally agree with that quote. And I think I'd like to think that I lived up to that quote. But I know I I know that it's easier said than done. I think, gosh, I don't know. I just I, I find that for me, when I first started acting, it was about it became about I just want to act. Like I'm not getting paid to do this. No one's hiring me. That's the obstacle. But so how do I just keep acting? We have these cameras. I have some friends who let's just make stuff. And then that would teach me filmmaking and we need an editor. Well, you know, I've never edited before, but I'll edit. And that taught me editing, screenplay structure, all that came out of this kind of time when I just was not getting any paid work. And I think if, if you have a goal and someone is blocking you from that goal, find a different way to do that goal. And the goal was never to make money. The goal was to act or to tell stories or to, that was the goal. And, and, and there were always opportunities to do that. But I often couldn't see those opportunities because I just wanted that validation from the industry. But eventually I would realize, oh gosh, I could do this stuff and and uh, and with no budget and and put it online and someone may see it, someone might not, but at least, at least I'm not getting depressed while I'm making it. Well, and at least you're getting it out, right? Yeah, so- getting it out. Yeah. And and so much of like those times, those Channel 101 years, and, and for me, it like really planted the seed for eventually directing a feature. Like I look back on on that experience, those experiences and think, oh my God, like I, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to skip forward to that because you brought up the directing. So I mentioned ahead that we met at Sundance. It was my first time there. I'd, I'd never had the time when I had the time, I didn't have the money when I had the money. Yeah. And finally, so I have a producer attached to my film. And she's like, no, you got to come. And we were supposed to go last year. Yeah. And of course yeah. yeah. got canceled. Yeah. And so they gave me a discount for this year. So I'm like, okay. Oh, great. <laughs> you know? And I almost didn't get into that panel, which you don't know. Oh, I didn't. I know. thought Sorry. I had RSVP'd and I couldn't find the barcode and whatever, but the security guy felt bad for me. I wheedled my way in. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's what you got to do there. Into the front row. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you had a, a film in, in competition, your firm first uh, feature, Shortcoming. Yeah. What was that like? Because you're at Sundance with a feature film that's in competition. And I mean, that must have been a little completely different than what's happened so far in your career. And what was that yeah. like? Well, that was my first time at Sundance as well. I, oh, amazing. Yeah, I had never been. I always wanted to go. Uh, uh, I had been invited by friends who had projects there, like, hey, you want to come hang out in Utah? And I'd, I'd always say, no, I'm not going to go until I have a project there. But I meant as an actor. I meant as an actor. I didn't uh, ever think I'd have a film there. And then when we found out that our movie got into Sundance, it was like, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to Sundance. You know, I just have heard so much about Sundance and read so much about it and but I had no idea what to expect because I didn't know how, because I'd never been there. And people would say things, and but it was like, 
you, you never know until you're there. And uh, it was it was re- it was great fun, but it was also because I think when you're a director there in competition, it's I think the experience is very different from other experiences because I didn't get a chance to really mm-hmm. sit back and enjoy the festival. Now I didn't get a chance to watch yeah. that many movies. I squeezed a couple in, but I there were I wanted to see so many movies there. I was like fascinated by these movies, but I just didn't get a chance because we were in competition. They had us, me and the cast doing these panels all day and interviews and the meetings and all this stuff. But I'm not saying that to complain because it was great fun, but it was just a very different experience. And But again, it was amazing. That's so cool. The panel you met me at was the last thing. And then I was on a plane back to LA. So yeah. So what kind of projects and characters are you, are you attracted to and why? I mean, for me, you know, it, the types of projects that I'm most interested in or the types of stories I'm most interested in telling as a director are, are similar to the kinds of movies that I like the most, you know, just as a viewer. And the movies that I love the most are about real people in real places, grounded, whether they be comedy or drama, just things that could, things that are, things that could actually happen in my own life. You know, those are the stories I'm most interested in. I like action and, and I don't know, stories about space and, and monsters and horror. And those are all great, but those aren't my favorite kinds of movies. Yeah. You know, my favorite kinds of movies are, are ge- generally more intimate. And, and those are the stories I want to tell, whether they be comedy or drama. That's cool. So how did, and I know this a little bit from the panel, but how did you directing shortcomings come about? And why was this story so important for you to go after and direct? Yeah, just through, you know, as my acting career continued on and it afforded me a lot of opportunities. And one of them was to start a production company. And through that production company, I asked one of my partners, what's going on with shortcomings? This graphic novel that had been around since 2007, but I hadn't seen anything done of it. And so he looked into it and found out that it had been optioned by roadside attractions who were producing it. And they were meeting with directors directors and there was a script and I was like oh my gosh who wrote the script and they were like Adrian Tomina the writer of the graphic novel and I had never directed a feature before but I had directed some TV at that point and then had directed a bunch of shorts and stuff and I thought I had no no business throwing my 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 hat in the ring but but I was like I'm going to try because I'm just I I know the story really well I love the story I've been obsessed with this story and and it's the kind of movie that I want to make and so I pitched myself and and my vision and ended up pitching to Adrian and they, they liked what I had to say. So we came up on board. And over the next couple of years, we just worked on the script together with Adrian and Adrian and I just finding out different ways to to modernize it. And because the book was back in 2007, and he had written the script not too long after that. So the script had been sitting around for a long time. And eventually it was it, we had a good strong draft. This was a couple years after I got on board and we sent it out to get financing and to see who, who would bite. And uh, we got financing. And once we got financing, it just became this whirlwind where we were like just moving right away because I had a I had a limited window because of some acting mm-hmm. things that I had to do. So it was like, do we make it like now and just as fast as we can? Or do we wait yeah. until I'm available? And we were like, let's just do it. Let's just do it. So we we acted. So it, it all happened very fast after once we obtained financing and we went right into casting right into uh, pre production, went to New York, shot it, 
then we were trying to make the Sundance deadline and it just became this mad dash to like get it in a good place for Sundance. Yeah. Like you almost didn't have time to even think about the fact that you had manifested yourself into a director. No time. Yeah. Yeah. No time to think about it. It was like, and and that was probably a good thing. It was probably a good thing because uh, it was just keep your head down and get this thing in the best shape as possible. And and it was great. It was, it was really, everything happened just as it was supposed to happen, I think. So cool. So we've chatted a little bit about my film, Alone Girl. Yeah. It's a coming a middle-aged story wrapped in an unromantic comedy yeah. based on yeah. me. <laughs> I'm a very yeah. happy single woman in her 50s, and I think more people, more women need to see that. Yeah, um, yeah, of um, course. But I've taken the rom-com, turned it on its head, and you're very familiar with rom-coms and working on them. Yeah. And I just rewatched Always Be My Maybe last night. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I was talking to you, which I loved. And I did wonder why you didn't try to direct that, because I know you wrote it and produced it. Uh, I think because I wasn't really in a position to. I wasn't in a position for Netflix to, okay. to, uh, to be okay with that. But Ali and I were good friends with Nanachka Khan, who we thought would be like so perfect to direct it. Yeah. And she was, and she's just yeah. genius and just incredible. But it, yeah, it, it, I wasn't in that. I, and I wasn't even, it wasn't even a thought for me to, you know, at the time. I was just curious. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't even think I was going to ever direct a film at that time. That, that came a little later. Well, did you learn, have you learned anything from those experiences with rom-coms that might help me on my journey? with my well you know it, 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 i can't wait for you to see shortcomings because it, yeah it, it is a subversion of, of rom-com as well you know and there's a lot of uh, rom-com kind of elements in it but flipped on its head and uh, i think are you are you do you mean in terms of rom-com specific things or do you mean in terms of what kind what do you I mean, mean i don't like are there traps that should be avoided are there things that like I, I too like grounding things in reality. Like yeah. I would call my film an unromantic comedy, but it's also the film that most inspired me or that I looked to as I was writing it was a, a film called Beginners. Yeah. Oh, that's um, a great movie. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of, you know, there are more dippy dips than you would normally get in a rom-com. But then make, make those high points, I think, hit even, or the absurdity hit even harder. That's right. In my mind. That's right. You know, so yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious, or if there's anything, even as a filmmaker or director that you're like, well, this is, these are kind of things I learned that I wish someone had told me. Or- I mean, it's not, I would say it, these are things you already know, but, but it, it is something that through the process of, I mean, less so with Always Be My Maybe because we wrote it and we cast it ourselves, mm-hmm. but, but with shortcomings and with, I, I think, especially in these kinds of movies that are grounded and about just real human beings, you know, I, I think casting is just so key, making sure that the right people are playing these parts, I think is, is really key. I mean, we, for shortcomings, the protagonist, or you read in the graphic novel is a very complicated character, even more so in the script. So just a very uh, uh, complicated character and a tough character to kind of follow throughout a story, you know, especially a movie. Mm -hmm. So the key was to find an actor who was great, who was funny, but also who just has something about them that makes you want to kind of put yourself in in his shoes even though he's not the nicest person and so it was it was a, a long process for us to find that actor and and we found Justin H Min who was who just had this quality about him where you could really 
you know, this character goes on a lot of tirades and, and very opinionated, but you could almost feel his broken heart under behind everything. And, and so it makes him, there's a very kind of human vulnerable quality to this guy who on the page is actually very difficult. Yeah. And I think that he, that vulnerable quality makes it, and I, not everyone, not for everyone, but I think for most people, it makes it feel less like anger and just opinions. And sometimes he's a little cruel. Sometimes he's dismissive. Like the, it comes from someplace. And yeah. I think that that's key. Casting is just so key. Yeah. Yeah. We're um, trying to, cause the, it's written in this really, which I did on purpose. <laughs> it's her story. Her name's Sam. Yeah. So it's, it's quite literally, she's in every scene but she has this group of friends and then there's family and so there's this ensemble feeling even though it's yeah. a story about one person yeah so it become what i've been told <laughs> as i'm learning from because we finally attached a fairly well connected producer yeah he's like this is it's great and i don't want you to change a word but it's hard it's a hard it's going to be hard to con- to talk to the distributors about this yeah the way it's built and those are things i want to rail against you know, like I want, I'm going to say a name here, but we're going after Maya Rudolph yeah. for the lead, who is biracial. And I want that yeah. for the role because yeah. my yeah. story is about all women, not just white women. Yes, yes. Yeah. And yeah. more filmmakers need to see beyond what we see in, in the mirror Yeah. To, to put out into stories, right? We need to be those bold people so that everyone can see themselves up on screen. Totally. So yeah, I don't, now it's going to be a hard sell for me as a first time film director to all the actors, I think. Yeah. You know, and that, I just, I'm like, just get me in the room. I know if they can meet me, yeah. they'll see it. They'll see what I see. They'll see why I'm the director of the, yeah. the, the script I wrote. Yeah. I think that's it. I think, you know, when it's harder to do and harder to pull off, it's probably, it's probably important to be told, yeah. you know, it's probably important to get made and, and the trick will be getting there and sticking to your guns as much as possible, but also knowing when to let go and when to kind of be, yeah. you know, and, and, and seeing opportunity where you may not have seen it before. You know, I think all of that is important and being loose, but also remembering that, oh, yeah, this is an important story to tell. And the fact that it's, you know, there's so many challenges in, in getting there is a clear sign that it needs to be told. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I think the same thing. I'm like, and there's every fiber and bone in me is you're going to get this made. Yeah. I've manifested everything. So like this podcast is part documenting all of this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I got, I'm having this conversation, which is how great. Yeah. A year ago, I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah. And we just met, you know, we met briefly at Sundance and it's, it's, and I think that there will be, whether it's Maya Rudolph or Mm -hmm. someone else, there will be someone who is going to be the one, clearly the one who's supposed to be in this. And then I can build, you know, that, that cast around that. Yeah. So there was a DGA podcast I was listening to and a bunch of directors said that they, some of them said they like to be by the monitor and some said they like to be in video village. You're an actor and someone who's directed now. What do you prefer and what do you think helps? Uh, you know, I think I, for, for me, it, it's both, you know, it's not one or the other. At least for this movie, it was both. There were times when I felt like it was better for me to be closer. And there were times when I really wanted to see what we were capturing. And uh, some of it was 
dependent on the location, the actual location and the, mm-hmm. the physical kind of parameters. And uh, some of it was because I just really wanted to be there with the actors and to, or I really wanted to be uh, at the monitor because it was really important that we get it just right, whether it be camera movement or framing or so. Yeah. As an actor, what do you prefer? Do you prefer the director to be there or? Uh, I don't really have a preference like but that's just my own personal kind of philosophy as an actor it's very much serve the director make sure we get this vision right and that i am like being truthful in these scenes while also making sure the director gets what Mm -hmm. they need Mm -hmm. you know yeah do you have any advice for the listeners out there i usually i like people to be able to learn when they listen to this yeah i think everyone's path is different so it's really the human tendency to compare and to to want to be at a place where you think others are, I feel like that's not good. And to to just be outside of your own kind of whatever whatever fills you with the most kind of energy and to enjoy and and creative life, like you want to stay there as much as possible. And the journey will take you out of that mm-hmm. from time to time. That's just how it that's just the, how it is. Yeah. But to always remember to get back to that, that passion, because especially with filmmaking, it's gosh, you, you really need to be passionate because it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. And to not let it get you down to the point where you're no longer excited about what you're doing. Just you got to get through those periods and right back at it because and, and tell stories that you're passionate about, because, again, it gets tough. And if you're not passionate about the story, then you'll probably want to give up once it, the obstacles start piling up. Yeah, it's a it's a commitment. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real commitment. Yeah. But it's so fun. Yeah, it's so fun. It's so fun when you're in. And it. if you look at it in the small steps, that's where you can't look at the, it's going to be on the screen. Yeah, you got to yeah. know, what do I do next? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I got that. Or I'm here. And to find, I don't know, I just, I love it. I love all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Do you have a, on a turn the tables moment, which you don't have to, but if you have any questions for me. Um, well, I mean, you're about to make this movie that's really important to you. And it's a story that, you know, and I, and I agree with you that you have to look just that right, what's right in front of you and chip away. But I do think it's nice and helpful to imagine the goal or the best, you know, the ideal kind of uh, situation, just briefly to imagine it and to know that it's a possibility. What, what do you see as a really great outcome for this project? I'm on a panel with you at Sundance next year <laughs> yeah. for my first film. It's great. And then it it's goes great. on its run. If it gets noticed, for award seasons, that's great. But to me, yeah. the success will be yeah. if people come up to me and tell me they feel seen or that they understand their sister or mom or girlfriend better. Yeah. That would be true success to me. That's beautiful. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Aww, that's amazing. Thanks for thanks for putting me in that headspace. <laughs> of course. Yeah, you gotta you gotta you gotta remember that too every now and yeah. then. Yeah. And do you have to to leave everyone? Do you have anything you want to get the word out? Gosh, not really. I mean, nothing immediate. Well, your films might will be coming out some point, right? Yes. And I'm not sure when yet. We're just starting uh, to dive into all that. But we are very excited to, to have distribution. We're, we're with Sony Pictures Classics, which is like very exciting. Oh, amazing. Yay. Thank you so much, Randall. This has been so much fun. And I love getting to know you a little bit better. And you've got such great things 
to impart to everyone. Ah, oh, thanks, Chris. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to Blissful Spinster. If any of these conversations are resonating with you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Blissful Spinster on Instagram and through our website, blissfulspinster.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me on this journey. And until next week, go find your happy.